Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turns Podcast. I am your host, Elgin Bailey, a.k.a. Big L. I want to thank you all for tuning in. This is season four, episode nine. This particular season, we are walking through the myth and propaganda of black buying power by Dr. Jarrett A. Ball. We continue in chapter four, page 55. If you're following along, page 55. If not, just listen to the sound of my voice and let's unpack some of this truth. And I read, It should also be noted that the economic picture painted of black America in this report, like most of its kind, does not reflect the actual conditions previously described. Its goal, following the trend given elevated life in 1954 by John H. Johnson, is to promote to white advertisers that despite historic inequality, the black consumer is resilient and always able to come back ready to spend. Data are poorly interpreted to justify the claims and to reframe reality in such a way as to not dissuade ad revenue from flowing toward black presses and punditry, which enjoy those dollars most. What is left to the marketing community alone, that would be one issue. But as the report proudly acknowledges, with the propulsion of the black press itself, distorted claims regarding black economic conditions are encouraged as reality by members of the community promoted to the community as fact. I gotta write that down right there, man, to remind myself to go back and unpack that a little bit more. Because I want to read it one more time. The black press itself, distorted claims regarding black economic conditions are encouraged as reality by members of the community and promoted to the community as fact. Damn. For example, without evidence or venting, the report simply repeats and attributes to it the Silic Center claim of black buying power rising from its current 1 trillion level to a forecasted 1.3 trillion by 2017. Supporting the claim are references to impressive gains made by black women in education and business ownership. Black consumers being loyal to name brands and beauty supplies, how social media continue to engage black consumers all ages, and that not enough ad dollars are spent on television targeting black audiences who by percentage of population watch more than anyone in the country. Perhaps most disturbing, however, is the call from among black media and journalists specifically for a southern strategy to target toward the numbers of black people moving back south in a reverse migration. This use of the phrase Southern strategy with quotations around the phrase, as if to acknowledge the fact, disturbingly harkens back to the intentionally racist media strategy of the Republican Party. First with Barry Goldwater, then Richard Nixon, and on to Ronald Reagan, a campaign which targeted the anti-black white supremacist attitudes of white Southerners to attract their votes making that phrase an even more interesting choice for use in marketing material attempting to connect black consumers to white companies. And I'm telling you, man, this is still taking place. Black 
media, black punditry are still trying to convince white ad companies to market with them because they owe it to us. You'll see more and more of it. And I read, in 2018, I asked reporter Elay Yu about her national public radio marketplace story. And it's reference to both Nielsen and Silicon claiming that black women own about 1.5 million businesses in the country, according to the latest U.S. census figures, generating more than $42 billion in sales in 2012. Now, I'm going to stop right there because I know Dr. Ball is about to ask some questions that I'm probably thinking right now. What does 42 billion in sales mean? What does that translate into? What, what, how much money are these black women owned businesses making? And where in the hell do she did she get this data from of 1.5 million businesses? And I read, I asked if she could share beyond reference just to the reporters themselves where those numbers came from. Indicative of the journalistic process which helped propel the myth of buying power, she responded in part that the Silic Center study, unfortunately, is only available by purchase. I referenced their statistics that they were available in their public press release and confirmed it with Jeff Humphreys with the Silic Center who worked on the report. My email to Humphreys went without response. Even more heavily resourced national media simply make headlines of a press release with confirmation from its author and with no review or investigation of the claims, methods, or inherent and expressed biases as representing the interests of the business community. For lay readers, a $125 fee for the Silic Center report is an obvious barrier, though it would be argued no such concern should exist for the natural media who make routine reporting out of the center's work, particularly when their express mission is to raise the economic intelligence of the community. Wow. However, once the barrier of cost and of an incurious press is overcome, there remains barriers of methodology, accuracy, context, and clarity. On one hand, as mentioned, the Silver Report is indeed straightforward in defining black power as a concept and explaining its actual function, according to the latest available report titled The Multicultural Economy 2017. Simply defined, buying power is the total personal income of residents that is available after taxes for spending on virtually everything that they buy, but it does not include dollars that are borrowed or that were saved in previous years. It is not a measure of wealth. It does not include what tourists spend on their visits. Unfortunately, there are no geographically precise surveys of annual expenditures and incomes of a nation's major racial and ethnic groups. Even estimates of expenditures by race or ethnicity are difficult to find, especially for individual states. 
The Celic Center addresses this problem by providing estimates of Black, Native American, Asian, White, Hispanic, and non-Hispanic buying power for the nation, the 50 states, and the District of Columbia. These current dollars, unadjusted by inflation, estimates, and projections, indicate the growing economic power of various racial or ethnic groups. Measure the vitality of geographic markets help to judge business opportunities for startups or expansions, gauge a business annual sales growth against potential market increases, indicate the market potential of new and existing products, and guide targeted advertising campaigns and guide targeted advertising campaigns. As previously highlighted, Silic acknowledges that it was created to convey economic expertise to Georgia businesses and entrepreneurs. The Simon S. Silic Jr. Center for Economic Growth is primarily responsible for conducting research on economic, demographic, and social issues related to Georgia's current and future growth. With that as its mission, and not the production of research whose purpose is an accurate assessment of any actual economic condition, it follows reasonably that the report would acknowledge itself not to be a measure of wealth. Instead, Selig offers estimates and projections which cannot be based on precise data regarding annual expenditures and income and which ultimately are meant only to guide targeted advertising campaigns. These statements alone disqualify any real understanding of the subsequent reference to growing economic power. These statements alone disqualify any real understanding understanding of their subsequent reference to a growing economic power. Further, the report's own numbers show that black buying power accounts for only 8.7% of the national whole meaning, far from any real power, and relatively even to a myth- mythic Buying power that even the myth reflects a small proportion than the percent of the national population held by black people at roughly 14%. But again, just how do they arrive at these estimates and projections? How the hell do they get this number? In 1954, Secretary Weeks tied their assertion directly to the overall income of the black community. We've already seen how this is unsound, especially relative to an increased claim today of one plus trillion when black people earn no more than 800 billion collectively. That is, the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, counts as the national labor force those over 16 who are civilian non-institutionalized and who are not serving the military. They estimate, right? They estimate that there are roughly 20 million black members of the national labor force who they also estimate are earning, as of the third quarter of 2019, $727 per week. 727 times 52 weeks 
times 20 million workers is 740 billion annually. That is 460 billion less than the reported 1.2 trillion in buying power. Of course, this would also then require a popular redefinition of the term power to mean spending more than every penny earned. Wealth, not income, is a far better determinant of economic condition. Income is acceptable if the goals are ad revenue and not assessment of the analysis, which may explain why, even after close examination, the methods involved in arriving at the conclusions reached by the Silic report are no clearer than before. Quoting at length their report's mythology. Because there are no direct measures of the buying power African Americans, Native Americans, Asians, whites, and Hispanics, these estimates were calculated using national and regional economic models. You, man. Forecasting techniques and data from various U.S. government sources, the model developed by the Silic Center integrates statistical methods used in regional economics with those of market research. In general, the estimation process has two parts. Estimating disposable personal income and allocating that estimate by race or ethnicity based on both population estimates and various in per capita income. The Silic Center's estimates are consistent with the concepts and definitions used in national income and product accounts. Readers should note that buying power is not the equivalent of aggregate money income as defined by the Census Bureau. Because the Silic Center estimates are based on personal disposable income data obtained with the BEA, Rather than money incomes values issued by the Census Bureau, the result is significantly higher estimates of buying power. There are several reasons for this lack of correspondence. First, the income definition used by the BEA is not the same as the definition used by the Census Bureau. Second, census income data are gathered through a national survey sample of households and respondents tend to underreport their income, which accounts for such a discrepancy. Finally, the population universe for the census money income estimates differs from the universe used by the BEA. It should also be emphasized that the Silic Center estimates are not equivalent to aggregate consumer expenditures as reported in the consumer expenditure survey that is conducted each year by the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. So none of these folks are on the same page. They're not on the same page with the definition of buying power. They're not on the same page of how they acquire the data to back up what buying power looks like. Not on the same page at all. Which is crazy, right? It doesn't make any sense. I, I mean, I'm blown away that it this it, it falls in this capacity, that it is taken advantage of and manipulated.
It's crazy. While the Silic report never demonstrates, defines, or shows their model developed to assess buying power, what they do share, especially with the final claims themselves, do provide important keys to understanding the performance of the myth today. Okay? First, what is defined as disposable income must be addressed as it remains unclear and confuses often what is understood about black income. That is, if, for example, it takes 44% of income to make rent in predominantly black communities, and all told the black community earns roughly less than $800 billion annually, how then is there so much disposable left for purchasing goods and services? It shouldn't be. Secondly, Silic acknowledges now, unlike the myth's 1954 origins, that buying power is not the equivalent of aggregate earned income as defined by the Census Bureau. Because the Silic Center's estimates are based on disposable personal income data obtained from the BEA, rather than money income values issued by the Census Bureau, the result is significantly higher estimates of buying power. They then also say that it should also be emphasized that the Selig Center's estimates are not equivalent to aggregate consumer expenditures as reported in Consumer Expenditures Survey that is conducted each year by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. In other words, Selig estimates and projections cannot be based on calculable numbers of actual incomes and actual expenditures. They must be generated by unclear methods to satisfy even more confused claims, which never include public mention of the center's functions to produce reports meant for targeting ad revenue and not explaining the actual conditions of any group. It's crazy. It's crazy. Further, Silic's use of data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis speaks to both flaws in his methods and demonstrates a point of origin for the properly disseminated and equally false idea that black buying power should be equated to national economies and their gross domestic product, GDP. BEA studies are national economies and GDP, which assists the confusion and heavy rotation that black buying power is the equivalent of any number of top 25 national economies. However, these are not studies meant again to assess the actual conditions of various communities within those countries. GDP only measures the value of goods and services purchased in a given year, meaning GDP measures the wealth generated for those who own those goods and services. It says nothing about the relative condition of those doing the spending. GDP does not measure inequality within any given national economy and therefore cannot, cannot measure the can cavernous gaps between that of black people earn and then spend on goods and services produced by white corporations. In fact, as shown in the Pew Research chart below, inequality actually can 
and does increase as does the GDP. When someone buys a sandwich, they have contributed to the national economy and GDP. But the relation to the value created by that purchase is nothing compared to the owner of the sandwich shop or those who own the process of bringing food from farm to table or processing lab to grocery shelf. It is this difference which is not measured by the GDP. Further, as Demos points out, it is again about distribution. Despite being a broad measure, there are several things that GDP does not measure that are essential for both the economic and society. Most glaringly, GDP does not capture the distribution of growth and as a result cannot reflect inequality. Since 1979, the bottom 20% of earners saw their income increase by 18%. Over the same time period, the top 20% of owners saw their increases, their incomes increase by 65%, and the top 1% saw their income increase by an astonishing 277%. The U.S. GDP, meanwhile, more than doubled over the last 30 years with the no ability to reflect the growing income inequality. As the graph below shows, as the GDP has increased, so has the level of inequality. Ooh, Lord. I just I want to I want to sit in this for a minute. I want to read that one more time because I, I I just want you guys to to hear and understand. Okay. Wow. <sighs> okay, and I read. Despite being a broad measure, there are several things that the GDP, gross domestic product, does not measure that are essential for both the economy and society. Most glaringly, GDP does not capture the distribution of wealth and as a result cannot reflect inequality. The GDP does not capture the distribution of growth and as a result cannot reflect inequality. Since 1979, damn, I, I struggle even reading this because it frustrates me. Since 1979, the bottom 20% of earners saw their income increase by 18%. Over the same time period, the top 20% of earners saw their incomes increase by 65%. And the top 1%, hold on, the top 1% saw their incomes increase by an astonishing 277%. The U.S. GDP, meanwhile, more than doubled over the last 30 years with no ability to reflect the growing income inequality. So, since 1979, 
the bottom 20% of earners saw their income increase by 18%. Since 1979, the top 20% of earners saw their, incre their incomes increase by 65%. Since 1979, the top 1% saw their incomes increase by motherfucking 277%. The bottom 18, the top one, 277%. Damn. And I read, while GDP offers an attractive numbers and provides speakers with an applause line and jaw-dropping speech highlights, it is not known by economists as a preferred method for assessing inequality among specific groups within a given country. Buying power is a phrase developed by marketers to attract advertising revenue. The numbers read as immense and impressive, but in context, reveal themselves to be reflective only of what wealth is being generated for the owners of production. Large sums of buying power in dollars do not reference or reflect the autonomous power of any group to use that money as they would choose. Monolithically, and to the benefit of any whole. But when reports of and reporting about buying power are examined and just as opposed with simultaneous but largely ignored economic analysis, what becomes most apparent is the process by which myth beyond becomes reality. The process of which myth becomes reality. The process of when myth becomes reality. Ladies and gentlemen, we have concluded chapter four. Chapter four of the myth and propaganda of black buying power by Dr. Sherrod A. Ball. Page Turner's podcast is distributed by KeystoneDigital.tv. We thank all you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners. Till next time, I'm out.